Good morning. Welcome to Wednesday morning chapel. As for me and my house, absolutely. Now, there are some folks in here, uh, and I'm not going to point them out, but they haven't been in chapel on Wednesday mornings yet before. So we need, to work over, we need to work on our theme one more time. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. One more time, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A absolutely. It's our privilege to have Dr. Jim Bond uh, as the speaker of the morning. Uh, most of you know him uh, as the General Superintendent Emeritus uh, for the Church of the Nazarene. Some of you know him as former pastor at First Church. Some of you know him as counselor and professor at Nazarene Bible College. Some of you just know him and he's a good guy to know. Um, I'm always really grateful that he made room in his schedule to, uh, to minister the word to us this morning. Uh, we're going to sing some songs and then uh, Dr. Bond's going to preach. What we ask for, Father, this morning is a sense of your presence and a recognition of your enabling. You make it possible for us to glorify Christ. You make that a reality. And we want to thank you for that. We want to thank you for the opportunity to serve you in the ways that you've called us. The variety of gifts that you've given and the variety of responsibilities that we've accepted be glorified, we pray today, uh, in the things that we do for you here in this place. As we pray, we want um, to remember in a special way Neil and Cheryl Colby and their daughter Lori. Uh, uh, the situation that she faces is grave, but it's not beyond your, the scope of your hand, uh, certainly not beyond the reach of your grace. And so we pray that you would be glorified as they trust you with her and rely on you for guidance and peace and help. And we pray too that you would help our hearts and our minds and our bodies to receive your word from Dr. Bond this morning. Um, we do indeed need to understand um, the possibility that you call us to, to the fullness of Christ, to Christ-likeness in every aspect of our lives. Help us to sense that in new ways. Help us to, to see it, realize it in new ways. So we pray, Christ in us be glorified. people said, Amen. You may be seated. Dr. Bond.
Thank you, Chaplain Like, and especially thanks for the privilege of being here today. Greetings, my friends, my cherished friends, my brothers and sisters. And I greet you in the name of that great and glorious man who in the Revelation said, I was dead, but behold, I am alive forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Is this a required chapel service today? Pretty good attendance, huh? <laughs> and what a glorious morning, huh? When you've been through the drought we've been through, folks, this is glorious out there today, isn't it? Take any and all of this we can get. Now, does this go till noon? I can't, even get, I can't even get to my watch. We're in trouble. <laughs> oh, I see. A little clock there. What time are we through? I should know. Been here before. 10 o'clock? Quarter after. I better get going. Hey, when I resigned, when they kicked me out of office, to be more correct, as general superintendent, <laughs> a year and a half ago now, my colleagues and I had established what we call the Board of General Superintendents Thought Partners, a group to think with them about what are the critical issues facing the church, and then lay on the table before them some ways in which those issues could be addressed. I remonstrated a few times with them, but ultimately agreed that I would chair that group. There's seven of us, good representative group. So I give a lot of time to that. That's my highest priority right now, that if the general superintendents ask me to do it, I'll do it, and I'll give everything I have to it. So it's been much more consuming than I thought it would be, but it gives me a chance to give back to the church virtually everything that I have. So just quickly, with the general superintendents, we agreed that there are four sort of umbrella issues under which each there are several critical issues. Those uh, four large concerns, if I may use that term, are organizational structure, which looks at everything in the church, from the general superintendents right down to the local church. Theology, where are we, are, where are we theologically, particularly with regard to Article 10 on entire sanctification. Uh, we have one we just call communication that picks up a lot of things. And the fourth issue is leadership development. Now leadership development is what I want to talk about this morning and I don't think I'd call this a sermon, it's just kind of sharing a little. So let me kind of put it in context with a little microcosm that I think describes what I'm thinking and feeling these days. I, uh, when I left office, not only agreed to chair this group but also to try to be a fundraiser and raise some money for the relocation of our headquarters to a new global mission center there in Lenexa, just outside Kansas City. So I, I went to, to the southwest where I know some people, having been president out there for several years, sat down with a group of 12 men, entrepreneurial types, fairly wealthy, and uh, was with them for a couple of hours. But after we'd been talking for a while, I knew these men as Nazarenes. It became apparent to me that some of them were talking about churches other than our denomination. So I just called a halt. I said, how many of you are no longer attending a church of the Nazarene? Nine hands went up. Nine out of the 12. Shocked me. 
Um, obviously, I didn't make the ask that morning in that context, thinking I got to refocus on how I'll do this. So I, I said to the men, "Hey, I'm going to be back in a couple of months out here, and uh, will you sit and talk with me about why you left the Church of the Nazarene?" They agreed. I went. We we were together a couple of hours, focused on several things. But you who are responsible for training of ministers would be particularly interested in the fact that much of their rationale for leaving our denomination focused in their pastors. And their concerns went all the way from, what do I say, a mediocre kind of preaching. They were not strong in the pulpit. Uh, to uh, they had little financial acumen. They were apprehensive, maybe fearful of the strong entrepreneurial type person and were not comfortable with this kind of individual. Um, most importantly, they said, they demonstrated very little evidence of leadership skills. Well, I tried to learn from that because that last one was kind of like salt in an open wound to me. I've traveled the world the last several years. I've seen the church at, at all levels. And I am absolutely convinced that leadership is the key to the success of any organization, any entity, any enterprise, including the church, at all levels of the church, including lay as well as clergy. So I want to talk about leadership a little bit. I think it's important for you for a couple of reasons. One, you're responsible for training leaders. When I talk about leaders and the people who are most effective as leaders, it's pastors of local churches because the local church is where the mission of the denomination is played out. So it is absolutely imperative that we find some ways to enhance the level of training for leadership. And secondly, I, I want to talk about leadership because you are leaders. Like it or not, whether you consider yourself a leader or not, all of those in this room today, we are leaders. And very much involved in the leadership of this educational enterprise called Nazarene Bible College. A few years ago, I was with the general superintendents. We were with a woman named Frances Hesselbein. She was the lady who almost single-handedly resurrected the Girl Scouts of America. And in the course of it all, she said, and just writing things down as fast as I could, this is pretty much it, leadership transition is the ultimate test of leadership. Because the way you leave an organization is more important than how you found it. Well, that stuck in my mind. I spent a lot of time thinking about the organization called the Church of the Nazarene. How do you turn the reins of the organization over to the coming generations? Do you just let it happen or do you get intentional about trying to do it? Well, that's all wrapped up in what we're studying and working on now with organizational development. But the big question in my mind is what are the most essential qualities desired in today's leader? Let me pluralize that. Today's leaders who anticipate, who lead in anticipation of tomorrow's church. In other words, 
our thought partners group is trying to anticipate a denomination of let's say 10 million in 20, 25 years. Can our organizational structure get us there? I don't have time to go into that, but my sense is it, it doesn't have a chance of getting us there. It's, we've got to restructure in some significant kind of ways. But when you think out there in the future, then you say, what do we have to do to get out there and accomplish those goals? And incidentally, unless we can get the old US of A turned around in Canada, North America, uh, we probably are not going to contribute greatly to that 10 million. There's some absolutely incredible things happening in world, other world areas. If I was a young man, I'd, I'd just head out to the Horn of Africa and say, I'm here to stay. <laughs> because I've never seen a moving of the Spirit of God like, like is happening there right now. Most exciting thing in the life of the church. Well, what are these qualities desired in, in today's leaders? Well, there's some givens. We want someone who's filled with the Spirit of God. Someone of, who is spiritually minded, a person of unquestioned integrity, a person of authenticity who's trustworthy, discerning, creative, willing to be vulnerable, a risk taker. I want a leader that's transparent. I want a leader who is visionary, who is intelligent, who is courageous. And the list could go on and on. But let me give you my list of the top seven qualities needed in the leaders who lead in anticipation of the church we want to be tomorrow. Not an exhaustive list. First of all, we need leaders who will be prophetic. What does that mean? Well, historically, prophetism has related to an understanding of God's role and his activity in the human situation. That divine role has normally been understood, interpreted, and announced by one who's called a prophet or a seer. Someone who sees, who apprehends that which is not normally apparent, but has been revealed by God. Someone who then speaks forth, he proclaims that which he or she has seen. That which has been shown to them by God. Walter Brueggemann in his book, The Prophetic Imagination, says the task of prophetic ministry is to nourish, nurture, and evoke consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. Pretty profound statement. Key word there is alternative. Prophets provide a different view of things. As seers, they see things through divinely enlightened eyes. They perceive alternative ways of, of accomplishing mission. They live on the edge. They're risk takers. They're, they're pathfinders. I, I've tried to think of it like this. Prophets are people who think critically. That is, they read the times. They read the cultures. They understand the church. And they listen to God. Intentionally focus on listening to God. So they think critically and then they act as God's agent. So they act catalytically. They speak for God to move God's people to accomplish God's mission. And never, in my judgment, has the need for such prophetic leadership been as acute as it is today. I have to hasten. 
Secondly, we need leaders who lead and don't just manage. Who know the difference between managing and leading. I confess that one of the great frustrations of my eight years as a general superintendent was that essentially we were consumed by managing and did not give or have the quality time we needed to give to be the visionary leaders which I think the church raised us up to be. Oh, you can get so consumed in putting out fires. And there are a lot of fires of conflict in the church. Now good district superintendents take care of all the fires and never bother general superintendents. Harold, you never called me about a problem, did you? I don't remember that you ever did. Great, great district superintendent. And I, I'm not being facetious now. He really was a great district superintendent. And I'm delighted he's here. He is now, and he's going to be just a great leader of this, this institution. Actually, general superintendents have no authority in a local church. You know that? The manual gives them no authority. And it's kind of limited even with the district superintendents. They're fairly autonomous, self-governing. That's the way we designed it from the beginning. But regardless of all that, every day letters pouring in. Please help us, please help us. And you can get so consumed by that. Which reflects what I said earlier, local churches need pastors who are better equipped to be leaders and deal with these issues. Well, I'm convinced though managing is, is necessary, managing is absolutely not leading. It's taking care of the emergencies, if you will, or just taking care of that which has to be taken care of in order to ensure that the institution keeps moving. I must keep moving. Three, we need leaders who lead from hope, not fear. Well, there, there's an attitude fostered by some who are leaders that we have to hold on to what we have. Makes, makes me think of the one talent in person that Jesus talked about who hid his talent just to take care of it. I'm going to guard this. I'm going to take care of it so it'll be here when you come back. Well, I think this is a fear that is born out of a mindset which has it that the organization just may lose its identity or it may lose its momentum under my watch, whatever part of the entity you might be giving leadership to. So the attitude is to protect, it is to guard, it is to say, my role is gatekeeper. And I understand that. And I think there's certain areas where you absolutely have to be the gatekeeper, no question. But to be dominated by leadership that is, that is basically guided by this gatekeeper mentality is to negate a potentially powerful and productive future. It is not for us to hold on to the status quo. Not if we're going to be leaders. So we have to have leaders who lead from hope, faith, trust. Such leaders elevate the climate and, and change the culture of organizations and even churches, including local churches and even the culture of educational institutions. 
And I guess if I look back over 14 years at Point Loma, the single greatest contribution I made, well, not maybe the second in my mind, is that I think we were able to change the whole moral climate of that culture. The whole climate. I'm not, I don't want to just limit it to moral, but the whole climate. So guardians of the status quo, in my judgment, are an antithesis to who we are theologically. It seems to me that Wesleyans, people of radical optimism, are by their very nature leaders of hope. <laughs> that ought to characterize us. We're people of hope. We ought to be leaders of hope. That's the kind of leader needed in century 21. Number four, leaders must lead with a fierce and fiery passion to preserve the core values. I, uh, I helped write this core values booklet several years ago. I'm kind of passionate about it. Would any of you remember my moment of embarrassment when I spoke at the commencement at NBC a few years ago? And uh, I asked how many, how many of the graduating seniors had ever seen this booklet? Though I, and, and very few hands went up. Well, I'd spoken in chapel just a couple of months earlier. I was sure, and I focused on this, that everybody had it memorized by now. But they couldn't even remember it. So I turned and rather facetiously said to my friend, John Williamson, chaplain, John, I thought you were going to get these in the hands of everybody. And then I even turned to the president and said, can we get this done? Well, I, I after it was over, immediately apologized to those two men. I felt I embarrassed them. and And... I wish I could have found a way to say to all of you, forgive me for embarrassing you on such an occasion like this. See, I'm kind of practical about what it means to be holy. I don't think it means we never speak an offending word. But it means when we do realize we have, we're quick to apologize. So I apologize to those guys. I apologize to all of you now, 25 years later, okay, or whatever it was. But I love that. I'm passionate about this thing tells who we are. We're Christian, we're holiness, and we're missional. And there's a, there's a uh, at, at least a new look, a new rewrite in some ways that I think is in process now. But I'm passionate about that. And I think it is very important that people who are leaders know those core values. They bought into them. They believe in them. They, they say this is who we are. That's why we did that. And at the heart of it all, is the holiness message. The message of holiness is our mission. Has been from the beginning. Still is. Always will be, hopefully. So if we lead from the posture of hope, then I think we have to be willing to say, this is our message, but let's find some creative, relative, relevant forms for the communication of this message to the new generation. And I know that's a little scary when you talk about that. But this is supposedly the era of postmodernism. Many studies have indicated that the postmodern mind eschews or, 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 or has no interest in anything that's doctrinal. Well, I understand that. I think that's been true in some sense of every generation. But because they don't want to hear it doesn't mean they don't need to hear it. So I think we have to make it as attractive as we possibly can. Incidentally, and just, just to let you on the inside a little bit, the, the Board of General Superintendents with the Thought Partners, we're working on Article 10. Um, Article 10 is on entire sanctification. 
I wrote the charge of some, to some people who are, who are working with us on Article 10. And essentially, just quickly, that charge is this. Give strong emphasis to the commonalities of Wesleyanism and the American Holiness Movement and seek synthesis of those differences where possible. Secondly, provide better understanding of the doctrine of Christian holiness expressed in Article 10 within the broad context of other Christian historic church traditions and sources. And finally, of supreme importance, let's position the doctrine of entire sanctification on the strongest exegetical foundation possible. I, I'm excited about what's happening. I've read papers, given a couple of papers at global theology conferences and, and the U.S.-Canada conference. And, you know, my passion has been to say, let's bring us all together, let's talk, let's get to the place where we can say, this we believe, we're together on this. It is sound, it is biblical. In, in no way do I want to water down what we have, what we have proclaimed for a hundred years, but I want, I want us to, to find the commonalities between American holiness and, and Wesleyanism, and many of you are not even aware that there's some differences there, but let's bring them together where we can and synthesize them so we can stand up and say, this we believe. Well, I could talk all morning about that. I really could. <laughs> I, I, I've discovered what I think, for me personally, is the best way to try to communicate holiness today. When you talk about Christian perfection, forget it. Wesley had enough problems himself trying to explain what he meant by Christian perfection. So we don't downplay the doctrine but we don't, we don't use that term Christian perfection to lead for us with the people of the world what we mean. Why? Because nobody understands perfection. They think of, of it only in absolute terms. So there has to be a better way. For me, the best way to communicate the doctrine of holiness is to identify it with Christ-likeness. Because that's the highest definition of holiness. We're created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What does that mean? How do you define righteousness and holiness? Well, I can say it in a word. It's Jesus. We're created to be like God, made known to us in Jesus Christ. So, at the heart of it all, I've just found that's the best way to communicate this glorious, liberating truth that is Christ-likeness. God has made provision for the entire human situation. Forgiveness, justification, cleansing, filling with the very power and presence of that great and glorious man, Jesus, through the blessed Holy Spirit. Well, number five, quickly, leaders must stimulate progress. Some of you know the name James Collins. Built to Last was the first book uh, he wrote that hit the market and was like an explosion. And then uh, great to, from Good to Great, second one he wrote. Uh, a few years ago, we, we had... John Sumatinus had right here in Colorado Springs their Columbia Project meeting, which is uh, once a year gathering, and we bring in two or three uh, supposedly knowledgeable people, some within, some without the church, and it's a training session for us. Well, James Collins had just written Built to Last, so we, he agreed to meet with us for one morning 
So we'd have to go to Boulder where he lives to meet with him. He didn't want to come to Colorado Springs. He didn't leave. If you wanted to talk to him, you had to go to Boulder. So we did. Probably the most stimulating three hours of my life, intellectually. Brilliant guy. I don't have time to go into all that, but you know that in Built to Last, he, his, his theme is, as he examined companies that endured over time, you have to preserve the core and stimulate progress. You have to do everything you can to know who you are at, with your core values, and so those you keep true to at all cost. But you also stimulate progress doing anything and everything you can to accomplish your goals. That's what he called BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. So he said to us, what are your BHAGs for the Church of the Nazarene? What do you envision the church being? Well, we talked about uh, our quadrennial goals, which at that time I think were like, oh, two million. Two million by 2008. We went around talking about this for a while. He said, you guys don't know what a BHAG is. Let me give you a BHAG. What would you have to do to preserve your cores and become a denomination of one billion people. Now that's a BHAG. And then he said that's a B-H-A-G-G-G. That's a big, hairy, audacious, God-glorifying goal. Well, core values say this is who we are, let's be true to these, but at the same time we have to do everything we can to stimulate progress. We will not accomplish goals by adhering to the status quo. We have to be willing to be all things to all people that by all means we might save some. You know as well as I that methodologies are not sacrosanct. In pastors' context where I had the chance to talk to them, I would often say if the old methods are working for you, why change? Keep working those methods. But if they're not, find a new method. Explore. Find something that does work. And then get your people involved so that you give your, your, your resources and your energies to accomplishing the goal. Leadership that operates from the hope says to the practitioners, I trust you. You're a local church leader. That's where the mission is played out. So I'm sure, Dr. Graves, you said that to your people. I, I trust you. I, I'm willing to take the risk with you. I will stand alongside you. I will support you. I will, I will do everything I can to resource you. Number six, I've got to hurry. Leaders must lead from influence, not position. That's changed. Used to. He came in and said, I'm a general superintendent. They bowed. They scraped. Now they boo and uh, walk out. <laughs> oh, not literally, of course. If, if you have any concern about titles, you don't want to be a president on a, on a university campus. I remember the fall after I got elected president at Point Loma. I mean, I'd, I'd been in office maybe six weeks. I was walking across campus early one morning. A young guy came toward me. Bright, brash, sophomore. I knew him. And before I had a chance to say a word, he said, Hey, good morning, Jim. How are you today? Well, I wasn't offended. We talked for a while. I walked on and I thought, let's see. 
1954, I'm a student, Pasadena College, Dr. Westlake T. Perkheiser's president. Would I have walked along and said, good morning, Wes, how are you today? Absolutely not. But I can tell you honestly, I, I'm not offended by that at all. I have great respect for the office of the General Superintendency, for any and all offices. But I'm convinced no one is awestruck these days by titles or by position. We influence people most profoundly by who we are in the deepest part of our being. Either negatively or positively. We influence them by our values, our priorities, our convictions, our worldview. People who follow the leader, they follow that one who is trustworthy, authentic, and the battle for followership has to be won here before the leader sounds the charge, the, the call to charge. Finally, Christian leaders must lead from the servant mind of Jesus Christ. That's everything. All important. Don't have time to say all I want to say at that point, but it's okay. Well, let me go to my text. <laughs> I usually start with a text. You know this well. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. King James says, made himself of no reputation. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. I could read more, but I think that really is the point. Christian leaders are, on, are, are intent on being like Jesus, who emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the nature of a servant. If I had time, I could expand on those things, but my friends, those qualities must, in inner principle, be operating in your life and in mine if we would have the servant mind of Jesus Christ. What does servant-mindedness look like in a college administrator? What does it look like in a faculty member, staff person on the campus of Nazarene Bible College? Oh, we could spend a lot of time there. It might be an interesting dialogue. Let me tell you what I think it looks like. I think it looks like love. First, foremost, it looks like love. It looks like the same kind of love that Paul so beautifully described in 1 Corinthians 13. It's been suggested that you actually could, could insert the name Jesus every time you see the word love there. And I kind of like that. Jesus is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, is not rude, 
is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus, love, never fails. Now, quickly, this is an educational institution, so the truth is it's not the church. We all, it is not a, a church, a local church of the Nazarene. We all have to be involved in those local churches. But wherever we go, we are the church. Isn't that right? On this campus, you are the church. You represent the church of Jesus Christ. And so, oh boy, to have the servant mind of Christ has everything to do with how we relate to each other, how we work with the people in this room here today, has everything to do with the way you treat students, the way you and I respond to people out here in the public has everything to do with that. While I glanced at the clock, I'm a little over. Let me finish quickly. I, I've, been, I've been accumulating books over the last, oh, six or eight years now, and I'm in a variety of subjects, but I'm particularly uh, captured by what I'm discovering from people of different theological traditions than, than Wesleyan. You know this as well as I. Many of them are writing about holiness. They're writing about the Holy Spirit. They're writing about Christ-likeness. One of the reasons why when we say we're Christian, I say that means we need to be sitting at the table with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And while they're interested in this, we need to, to be sure they understand from our perspective. We need to be at the table talking to them about it. Wonderful little book written by Ron Siders called Living Like Jesus. I was interested because he said, for many years I prayed regularly for the spirit-filled gift of working biblically for justice and peace. Then a few years ago, he said, I incorporated that request in a broader prayer. I began to ask God regularly for the spirit-filled gift of combining evangelism and social transformation. Today, he said, I just pray to become more like Jesus and to learn how in the power of the Spirit to help the church become more like him. That's my passion. That's my passion for this beloved denomination of ours that we will learn more and more how to become like Jesus. My little formula is simple. I wake up every morning and try immediately to look into his face and say, I worship you, Jesus. I worship you as creator. I worship you as redeemer. And I love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So help me today to think Jesus in all the context where I go. Help me to talk Jesus. Isn't he the greatest treasure we have? And above everything else, help me to live Jesus. That's the key to being a good leader. I'd like you to stand to receive the benediction, and Dr. Bond, I'd like you to 
off. Lord Jesus, it is easy to sing a little tune in a chapel service. But I pray that the spirit of the tune will get into our hearts and minds afresh today. And help us to worship, love, think, talk, and live Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.